Welcome to Game On Girl. Hello, everyone. I'm Regina, the host of Game On Girl, part of the Geek Embassy Podcast Network. If you haven't had a chance, make sure to subscribe to the Geek Embassy feed available now on iTunes and Podbean. For this episode, I interview Matisse Fletcher about the Living Computers Museum and Labs in Seattle, Washington. So stay tuned, and I'm glad you're listening to Game On Girl. Matisse Fletcher is an avid purveyor of nerd and geek culture. She is currently the front woman for the Living Computer Museum and Labs Events and Outreach, coordinating private event rentals and producing exciting museum events for all ages and interests. She has writing experience in the comic book industry and publications in poetry and short story anthologies. Ada and the Living Computers, a book inspired by the LCML, is her first children's book. Welcome, Matisse. I'm so glad to have you on the show. I'm happy to be here. Yay! I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> excited now that we've uh, worked through our technical difficulties. Yes, which I have to say, a little ironic considering I come from the Living Computers Museum plus Labs, but that's okay. Irony is part <laughs> of life, right? Irony <laughs> is part of life and is definitely something we can't avoid. Um, the number of times I have run into um, technical difficulties while getting ready to record a show is pretty astronomical, I have to say. <laughs> it's just a warm up. Gives yes. it a little. Flip. Exactly. Now we've we've ha- we've conquered a common hurdle together, so now we can be ready. <laughs> so much closer to you after yeah. this struggle. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so why don't we start with you just giving us a little bit of your background and history as a geek. Yes. So um, I will talk a little bit about the kind of professional path because it did, it feels like it led directly to the museum. I've been kind of all over the place. Uh, So I graduated college um, from Seattle University and went directly into the workforce. I'm very lucky in that way. And I did AmeriCorps for two years and I actually taught uh, computer literacy to, um, or in adult basic education classes. And so I was already kind of involved with computers and technology. And I also did ESL programming separate from that um, uh, around English conversation. Cool. Yeah. Oh, it was awesome. And being part of Seattle Public Library, which is like a Seattle institution. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing location. Beautiful. I was in the downtown building and there are 26 branches and I actually ran programming in four of the 26 branches and also just jumped around a lot. So it was a great opportunity to just really understand and get to know Seattle's neighborhoods and demographics. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Priceless. Yeah. Priceless. No kidding. That gets you really in the heart of things. It really does. And so whenever I'm doing programming for this museum as well, I, I pull on my um, like Seattle public library experience more than any other, I think, honestly. That makes uh, sense. You know, yeah. community. Totally does. And so then from there, I went into University of Washington Graduate School of Public Health and did program coordination and events, um, which is another kind of step in this journey towards a museum since I'm the entire events department, which I'll (laughs) (laughs) 
And then from um, from UW, I went into freelance. And when I was freelancing, I worked for Xbox, Ubisoft, uh, City Arts as promotional marketing, and especially at conventions. Uh, and I worked on titles like um, I did Halo was my favorite, and then I did some PVZ. Uh, stuff and it was mainly at cons, kind of either managing quality control, coaching players on demos, um, or just talking about the game and teaching people about it. Awesome. That, was, that was great. And then alongside that, I taught code to kids for a private company. And so, oh, wow. yeah, and like that was kind of what was making up my experience at that time. And then I saw a posting for this place that was at the time called Living Computer Museum. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what's this place? And a dear friend of mine said, you should go for this. And I did. And it was just this absolute wonderland of vintage technology. At the time, it was just vintage. And mm-hmm. so you go in and you look around and there are, I mean, everyone's childhood is in this museum. Yeah. I think I remember seeing it when it was, the living computer um, at PAX. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like brand new and they were just starting it. And I had followed the website and I had gone on and checked. And I, I remember talking, I think I had, I had been trying to interview somebody there. <laughs> <laughs> Conveniently enough, we swung back around to that because that was like three or four years ago now. Um, uh, and I remember one of the things that the person I was talking to said was people keep their old game systems in the styrofoam. And that was one of the most damaging things you can do to all the electronics. Yeah, no, there's, we have a very, um, strict and specific sort of archival process to preserve our pieces. And it's funny, we have, we have a pretty intense obsession with dust at the <laughs> corrodes so much mm-hmm. in some cases when we are getting artifacts from very far away or that were in terrible conditions the process to get it to the point where it could be restored and on the floor is just just this mammoth procedure right. all these steps uh and i learned about that as i was like going to this place for the first time and falling in love with this with this museum and it, it brought together the the job position which was the events events thing brought together like everything i all the done. little pieces of what you had been doing up until then really honestly felt like every single thing i've done has been a step towards this place and i've never ever felt more at home and happy in a job before and sometimes it gets overwhelming i'm just like how in the world <laughs> lucky because with the events department like this so I do private event rentals I coordinate and manage those uh partnership events like partner events um daytime programming all that and then my little favorite part uh are the feature events and the feature events are the big 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 mega parties that we throw and those are my imagination factory mm-hmm. you just kind of get the launch off and you're like let's do this and I really, as long as it ties back to our mission, which honestly I have a lot of leeway with because there's so many different ways to interpret and apply our content because technology and computing honestly has a history and a relevance to everyone, despite if they know it or not, which is um, part of what we do and why we do. 
Mm-hmm. We're trying to bring the history of the modern age kind of to people's, like the front of their consciousness and understanding how relevant this is to you and right. you, you, um, and also making it accessible and also creating a space where you don't just come in and stare at something. And granted, I enjoy that too. Like when I go to museums, I love looking at stuff. Um, however, here, the point is that you can come and interact. Like you right. can you can program on the Apple One. You can actually like type something on the teletype. You can, you know, t- push buttons and like actually create code and play. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole point. Um, and so, yeah, like when I got here, I was able to geek out about this place. <laughs> truly geek out about it because it brings you right in there with it. And our, uh, we have our little tagline, um, which is come in, geek out. And it's right. super simple, super cute, but it's, it's, it's quite a bit deeper uh, in our meaning. <laughs> sure. Well, of course the, the best taglines are right. <laughs> totally. Totally. That was a bit of a tangent, but it all it all tied together so wonderfully. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really cool. And I think that's one of the things that I love hearing people's stories about how um, they've kind of rounded into whatever work they're doing. And especially when it is this kind of situation where you had a varied and diverse background and then landed a place where all of it came together. Um, and you are definitely very lucky. Yes, it is. <laughs> It really like the friend couldn't, you know, maybe they didn't tag me in the post or maybe they didn't mention it. And like that would have changed my whole life. Right. Exactly. Like indebted to the person who posted it. And I want to like send her flowers and be like, hey, you changed my life. (laughs) (laughs) It was funny in the process of like learning because I'd never heard about it before. And most people even to this day haven't haven't heard about it. We're still kind of a secret and we're growing. Uh, But I remember I started going into the museum like two or three times a week for a couple weeks, few weeks, and the staff started to get to know me. I started to get to know them and they had no idea I was applying. Like Mm -hmm. I was learning everything and I was studying everything. And then it was hilarious to be invited in for the interview and I walk in and they all just go, oh, oh. (laughs) And I was like, hey friends. And it was just, that was a little strategic, but. (laughs) Uh Well, you know, I know I just, I just interviewed um, Nenania. She, she was uh, the, computer uh, or the community manager for um, robot entertainment. And uh, she essentially got that job after having streamed for them for so long um, and been such a like key member of their community that she worked into that job. And, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things that I think we don't focus on enough. And I say this as we as instructors, because I think I mentioned to you before we started recording, I teach technical writing a lot of the time. And the professional component of that, a lot of times we need to address these gaps that people don't have in what you need to kind of get into the workforce. And, you know, I'm only just realizing now at the point I am in my life that I I don't know how to network and learning how to network is really important. And that's one of those things when you're looking at someplace you want to be, you know, taking the time to make yourself known to that entity is, is a key component. Like you just don't walk in, like everybody thinks like you just, you know, all my students think, Oh, I'm just going to apply for this job and this is going to magically happen. And I'm like, you know, with the internet, 
there's 5,000 people applying for your job, like the job that you want, that you think is the perfect job that you're perfect for. So until you can identify a way to individuate yourself. It's so true. And I remember in, in generations before us, it, that was the way you got a job. Yeah. Places and said, are you hiring? And I remember um, my dad recently told me about a really rough time in his life. Uh, when I think something happened, he was on, he was working as a farmer at the time and something happened to the farm and like he was without a job and it was scary because I have two step siblings who are quite a, quite a bit older than me. Um, and I never grew up with them. And so it feels like a very separate life when he talks about this sort of thing, but he went where he just would walk for miles looking for jobs Mm -hmm. and it's heartbreaking to hear about that. Uh, but in the same vein, you know, when you talk to people nowadays that are doing the same thing, except instead of walking for miles and like potentially getting rejections each time after like that physical labor to reach the point, ours is, is, I mean, I'm not saying it's more psychological, but it's, it's such an interesting psychological journey to be applying so many times. Yeah. It's the same thing. And there's no way you can say anyway is is easier right it might be even more difficult but yeah it's an interesting sort of evolution of that yeah it's just it's indicative of um the way technology has changed our lives and the way you know all of this kind of interacts to become this modern world that we live in now um which can be just as complicated as you know as it was when you did have to like actually pound the pavement, right? That's the phrase, right? (laughs) Um, And you still have to pound the pavement. And I think that that's one of the things we're kind of missing is we think that a lot of, a lot of younger students and a lot of, um, or a lot of younger people just in general don't really take into consideration that you do still have to pound the pavement and you still have to build that community and that it is going to be those connections you make that are going to be what opens the doors for you. Not as beautiful as you can have a beautiful resume. If it doesn't get you in the door, it doesn't matter. You know? You're making such a great point. What we have been socialized. And when I say we, I mean, I, and I might mention this later again, but I am like, and I, I actually know before we started recording, I think I said this, I am the quintessential Seattle like millennial. Mm-hmm. And I think starting with my generation and, and moving down, we've been socialized to believe that things are going to come to us. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm sitting here and if you know, if you have a social presence or if you make your resume, you're just like, okay, I'm great. And people are going to come discover that not true friends. And I also feel kind of like silly saying it because literally this opportunity for the museum was yeah <laughs> to me on social media. But at the same time, I did do the footwork to go in and sort of create that connection with the place I wanted yeah. to. It's a twofold system. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to take all of it into consideration. You do have to have the presence that someone can find and make those connections, but you also need to do the groundwork too get the pavement and get out and get seen and get known and, and have, and be recognizable. And so all of that kind of ends up having to work together. Um, and I'm in, I'm in the process this summer of um, redesigning the, the technical and professional writing class with the, uh, with my boss, which is awesome. And it's over and overdue because a lot of what we've been doing is kind of out of date. 
Um, but uh, that's one of the big components that we're going to add in is how how to network and how to how to have the presence that you need to have to to differentiate yourself and kind of make a a name for yourself because it is something that's kind of a hole that doesn't really get addressed. So, yeah, it's gonna it's exciting. It's a lot of work, but it's exciting. <laughs> So, um, so where did your sort of geeky fandoms begin? Where, where did this start for you? Yeah, so there are two ways, I guess, when I was a little kid that this got started. Um, and I would have to say it started first with books. Books mm-hmm. actually were my passion as a little kid. Mm-hmm. He was there and like, I'll definitely get to like the visual media in a second, but like, I was a Matilda level reader. <laughs> people were like, oh yeah, I read tons. Oh, contraire, my friend. Like I would have to take like bags and buckets to the library to get all the books that I needed. And the staff would be taller than me, you know, at four, five, six years old. And oh man, I was a weird kid. So what I would do is I would take all of these books, which were mainly like fantasy books and so I really love the Dark Elf trilogy, Elf Quest, like Dragon Lance, all that stuff. And I read that as very, very young. And what I would do is next to my bed, I would stack the books by size. (laughs) And and I would stack them all. And I had a very strict policy of reading one chapter at a time and I would just go down the stack. Really? Okay. So like you not like one book at a time, but like one chapter from every book. Time. And then I would tell myself, I'd be like, stop, you're going to the next book. And so I would have stacks of like 10 to 20. Um, and I would just I was a voracious reader. And so <laughs> the reason that I read chapter by chapter as opposed to book by book was because I was very I feared boredom a lot as a kid. <laughs> Even before now with smartphones and everything, I didn't like to, like, I loved to daydream and yes, I could entertain myself, but my fear was getting bored of a book and like not finishing it. Oh. What I, do is I built this system so that I couldn't get bored right. and then I to get back to all of these different books. And I'm not sure if I like overstimulated myself and now have kind of created this short attention span that I have, but <laughs> that's how, <laughs> and so, Yeah books were a huge part of growing up in fantasy books, especially. And then um, my first visual media fandom uh, was Star Wars, Mm. Star Wars, and then Star Trek. And my mother is actually the one who introduced me to sci-fi and introduced me to all of what have now become like my core fandoms my mom is the geek of the family. Mm-hmm. Like that was more of the avant-garde, like let's watch these old, not even silent movies, like these, uh, what was his name? It was either John, John Cocteau or something. I think John Cocteau who did like uh, the original Beauty and the Beast and like the poet's brain and mm-hmm. like strange abstract films that really throw you into a surrealist crisis. Um, uh, yeah. And as a little toddler watching this, like that was my dad's side of things. And I'm like, <laughs> we're going to watch Star Wars. And I was just away by, by all yeah. of the different things. But yeah, so sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. Heavy it, was, it was my dad that was the sci-fi fan in my family. And he was the one who got me started on Star Trek. And 
um, Star Wars as well. Although my fandoms go back a little to a little younger than that. I always say my first fandom is um, the Muppets. Oh my God, you're right. I never. <laughs> it's so funny. I don't think of Muppets as a fandom, but it is. You're right. Like yeah. a fandom, I've been so socialized by. I feel like social media that a fandom. I don't know. It's funny how it breaks down into different. Mm-hmm. Things. But you're absolutely right. Oh. The different categories. Yes, yeah, so my first, my very first Halloween costume, I was Kermit the Frog. My, <laughs> my second Halloween costume, I was Miss Piggy. Like, those were. And then I think I was Gonzo one year. So, like, <laughs> those were those were the first place. And that was, and I used to make my dad tell, call me in, like, from playing outside to watch the Muppet Show when it was on. That's adorable. So that like that, that I point back to when I say my first one, because that was the first thing that like had my heart in some, some way and still does. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think I, I next went into like Star Wars because we used to play Star Wars on the, on the um, playground. We used to, you know, pretend and recite the lines and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I still have huge chunks of that movie memorized. The first movie, A New Hope from, you know, I still have chunks memorized. So so I used to be able to impress people. I wonder if I can still do that. I'm not going to try now. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm assuming, and I I know a little bit of this from social media. So Star Wars has still remained a large um, fandom for you. And you have a lot of current interests that still kind of like feed into your passions now. Oh yeah. I mean, we talked about my glasses earlier and Mm -hmm. I'm going to see this, but on the sides of my glasses are X-Wings and Rebel Insignias. And so I I wear Star Wars on my face. (laughs) (laughs) That's commitment. If anybody wanted to know, like master level commitment to your fandom. (laughs) One of my favorite podcasters, Lefty Brown, who did um, the gaming, uh, the Married Gamers uh, he has comic book glasses and I've always appreciated those too, like comic book strips on the, you know, on the frame. So, you know, and I think it's awesome. Like there was a time when, you know, you wouldn't have been able to find things like this. I love that geekdoms and fandoms have really just kind of like become this. So we can actually have <laughs> our fandoms, not just on our shoulder or on our sleeve, but literally like on your face. <laughs> Etsy and like cons have changed the game so much. Yeah, they've become so so mainstream and so just like, you know, just this big thing. And you think about what it was like to be a Star Trek fan in the 60s when it was like this total subculture and going to these things was like the weirdest thing you could do. And then now it's like, you know, there was a, a mom at my um at my daughter's preschool who was like, Oh yeah, we went to that Comic Con and I'm like I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Like, totally didn't even think like, okay, that's great. We were there. We were presenting. And she's like, oh, that's awesome. I'm like, yeah, I'm a little thrown by this, but that's great. But it's just, you know, it's just. The evolution of it has been so fascinating. And it's, I love like just a tiny, tiny little detour. Star Trek is such a pioneering fandom. Mm -hmm. Space with the first fan fiction. Yes first fan vid like the first ever talking about I don't think they use the terms that we use nowadays but like the first pairings and shippings and things like and so I love like I love Star Trek anyway but I think I I almost love the fan history more (laughs) than the show 
<laughs> as as much as I can love an an, an, an original series episode, um, boy, you have to be in the mood for them sometimes because yes, yes. you know the storytelling and the way you know filming was done then is just so. I mean, if you looked at now, if you look at Discovery and look at the difference between you know how the stories are told, um, it's like night and day. But um, you know they they did have great value and were you know, groundbreaking, not just for how the fandoms evolved, but literally for what was put on the screen in primetime TV. It's amazing. Think about it. I still, I'm teaching a science fiction film class right now. And so part of my brain is always kind of going back to that. And I keep bringing up to my students, you know, you want the most um, ideologically positive, you know, science fiction, you need to go to Star Trek because nobody else had a brighter outlook than Gene Roddenberry. Like he was like, we can do this and we can have this world. (laughs) I'm still hoping we get there someday. No, I know the purity of Star Trek. Purity. I mean, sort of like uh, hope Mm -hmm. tied to Star Wars and it is still very tied to Star Wars, but yeah, both franchises at the core is hope. Yes. Hope for peace hope for new worlds. And on the other hand, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And and hope for humanity to, you know, transcend the crap that we tend to focus on. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about, about the, the um, living computer museum and lab and it's lab singular, right? Lab. So it's, it yeah. is, well, if you want to say the full thing, it is living computers, okay. museum plus labs. Um, okay. And we, yeah, we grew from living computer museum uh, just to better incorporate like that we interactive. Are, yeah. That we do more. And so, I mean, I just call it living computers. Okay. 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 Good. Cause I'm like, this is so long. I don't want to have to run through this every time. Yeah, no, don't call the LC. Nobody knows that yet. Someday, someday people will be like, oh yeah, the LC. Like, <laughs> <laughs> one of our partner museums um, in, in our family, like our sister museum is Mopop, which used to be EMP. Oh. The full name. No one says the full name of Mopop or at the time EMP. Like no one's going to be like, oh, I'm going to the Experience Music Project. No one's right. going to I'm going to the Museum of Popular Culture. No, you say I'm going to EMP, I'm going to Mopop. I want to reach that status. Okay, we'll First help time. you. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> we will infiltrate and get as many people right. talking about the LC as possible. So what is the mission? So what, what is the setting out? And then how does that inspire the work you do as an event planner? So our mission um, is to bring computing and technological history and present and empowerment uh, to the public and what we try and do. And I talked a little bit about it earlier, but what mm-hmm. we try to do is just make it not scary <laughs> interact with technology and instead make it fun and make it empowering and make it interesting and remind everyone of the relevancy. And it's, it's super cool. I mean, I would say the essence of what we do, I can like give two examples to just lock it in. When we have someone come in who might be a little older and they get tears in their eyes when they go up to our vintage section and they and you you see them as they hesitate and then start to touch the keys. Oh. 
oh God, it gets me every time. Ooh, it gets me every time. It is such a cool, cool moment. And it's been so incredible to see just everybody. We've we've had every type of person come through and have that experience, whether like whatever gender they might be, like they've had that experience. It's, yeah. it's so cool to be able to facilitate that. And then another example would be when a child comes in and codes a robot and right. what they can do. Watch the outcome, you know, as they're, yeah. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. And it's so rewarding because you just, you watch it on the floor mm-hmm. every day. And that is literally what we do and why we do. And so how that kind of relates to events is I want to take it so much further and I want to create um, new demographics for technology. And so with a lot of my events, I try, we do a lot of events that are more technologically focused. Like we've done a lot of reunion events. Um, like we had a anniversary for space war, which is a video game, um, that we played or we have, we have things along those lines, but for the feature events, what I like to do is to combine different demographics and different perspectives and different worlds into our space Mm, mm -hmm. space you can experience it in. So for instance, uh, I had, and this, I love referencing this event. I love (laughs) this event. It was my cats of the internet pajama party. Nice. So fun. We had kittens, we had VR, we had, you could like, you could uh, create your own light up circuit cat ears. It, It was so fun. Because you bring people in, everyone was in their pajamas. Like literally, everybody came in their pajamas. It was oh, that's awesome. awesome. Uh, so it was silly. It was relevant because internet memes. It was pop culture, but there were educational aspects. There was a community aspect, and it it brought people into the museum as every feature event has. Like I pointedly make it so that when people come to this event, and the people who come to this event probably would never have entered our museum otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which creates that context for them. Right. And that's my own interpretation of our mission. Right. Um, where I can take it and I can sort of, oh, I can, I can make it bigger and I can make it more. And, right. um, and so every event I try and do that. And so that, that's the inspiration is the challenge of, creating events that bring people into what could be interpreted as a very esoteric space when right. in fact it's not <laughs> right so you how come party with me and let me yeah well and if you didn't do that it, it could get so so hyper focused you could just get the people who are interested in you know preserving the technology or interested in looking at how the technology has changed but by taking that on and sort of broadening the scope and and being conscious of inclusivity, because that's essentially what you're saying is you're making it an inclusive space where it could have been an exclusive space, right? Where it could have been just for people who were interested in um, looking at the old technology and looking at the evolution. But by doing this and by being conscious of it, you're just broadening it. And that's what, I mean, I'm, I'm very much an idealist when it comes to the power of technology. So I very much see that like, it can be the great equalizer, even though it's not always, but it, it has the potential for that. And you're opening it up to that. So 
very Star Trek attitude about it. It is. Well, you know, I did cut my teeth on Star Trek, my my sci-fi teeth on Star Trek. So there is a lot of that. And knowing that my dad loves Star Trek, that helped to continue the connection to him with it. So, you know, it has a lot of that in it for me. Like, how do I maintain it? How do I keep this and hold on to it? So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> someday it will be that it will <laughs> me gain access but I think that that's one one of the things at least as I've watched your your posts and I've seen you on on social media talking about the um the LC um really seeing how how it could be an equalizer in that I think that's one of the most powerful things you can do with it so absolutely yeah and it's it's really cool being in a position where I have, I get to have this sort of positive influence over trying to bring these worlds together. And we, so the first floor of the museum uh, is very new. It was built in 2016, the very tail end of 2016, Mm. 2017. And the first floor really revolutionized like my ability to do events. It gave me a full event space Mm. and it brought, it tied, I should say, the vintage floor into the modern age because the first floor is, is the modern section of the museum with, with a couple of vintage flavors in there, like our 80s exhibit, which is phenomenal. Um, oh, I saw that. I was looking at the, the special events. It looks so cool. It's, it's unlike anything you've seen just because of the sheer immersion of it. Like you are entering this, little three room world that is so complete. Like you forget that you're in the museum because it's so detailed and you, you basically leave the museum to go back in time and it's so well done because you get to touch everything and right. Or, and it's someone's house. It's not like this very formal sort of contrived space. It's, I mean, sometimes after we have visits and stuff, it's cluttered, it's messy. It's real. And it, that, oh man, that's the coolest thing. That's awesome. I love spaces that do that where you can take and you take, you know, as I'm going to go on my professor tangent here. <laughs> when we talk about the work of feminism, one of the things in one of the tenets, early tenets of um, feminism was to, um, to politicize the mundane, right? So to take what we consider everyday or regular and just, um, commonplace and see where it is um, political. And and when you can take a space like you, you can take and you put the nostalgia in a house, that's exactly what you're doing is showing the importance of how this has like had this place and using this nostalgia and the commonality of space to to kind of bring people even closer together. So, you know, although I would not project that the living computers might be a feminist space, it is certainly working on that. <laughs> it's an inclusive space. So yes. inclusivity is a, mm-hmm. is a massive feminism, you know? Yep, absolutely. So seek to... And it's, you know, I will say, like, we make such an effort to remind the community that women had such... Mm-hmm had a huge role in programming and yep. have the visuals for that history. And we do yeah. not get away from that history at all. Yeah. It feels like 
not that we're correcting history, not at all, but it, it just, it, like I said before, it's a reminder of like, by the way, this space right. is so much more open and inclusive uh, than you ever would have realized. And we actually had an exhibit. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, it was uh, an exhibit around Barbie and the importance of that. And so it was a very interesting experience because you had two sides of the community and I'll get to what it was about in a second. I'm going to talk about the art reactions first. Half of the community were angry and thought it was regressive. Mm. Other half of the community was angry that we were even recognizing femininity and women at all. Two sides of the coin. And it's so funny because literally like at the very extreme ends, they were saying the exact same thing, which I thought was curious. And so then when you actually go into the exhibit, it was about how Barbie was the first toy to interact with technology and Barbie female. Right. First interact with technology. So you go back into like the sixties, probably late sixties, early seventies and Barbie was on a computer. Right. Like Barbie was the one who was leading the way in like toys and expressing at least in that kind of uh, gap between when women were in programming and the new toy market and marketing to little girls, Barbie was the one who was like mm-hmm. working on computers. And then, of course, the plot twist for that exhibit was that we have the actual computers. So literally, Barbie would be there like on her little terminal from the 1970s, and you would turn your head, and there's the real terminal that you could now use. Right. The whole like point of that exhibit and where it came from was actually a very um, Uh, a book that, and you might know this one, I'm assuming you do. So Barbie has a series of books where it's two stories in one. One, you know, it could be half about becoming an actress, half about becoming a programmer. Yep. So the book, in the original cut, it has since been pulled or banned or um, that were recalled. Recalled, yeah. But in the book, Barbie wanted to program a fashion game. Mm-hmm. And she was doing great. She was like designing it. All this stuff was fine. But then when it got to the coding part, literally in this book, she was like, uh-oh, better get the boys. Right. Yes. Living computers mm-hmm. were like, oh, we need to talk about this. Yeah. So built an entire exhibit around that. And we talked about it. Yep. We, we as an institution are constantly talking about this, constantly like bringing up the social aspects of technological history. Yeah. Because it's so, it's hard. Well, I feel like I'm getting like, no, but we feel really strongly about it as an institution. And our, our dedication to inclusivity is boundless. And Mm -hmm. so super strong about that. I was like hella tangent. Sorry about that. No, I mean, you know, the show's called Game on Girl, so (laughs) which was the title of my dissertation. So it's all that's amazing. It feels good to be like it feels good to be a woman in an institution that supports women. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still, you know, it's it's funny. I um, I did this spring uh, Girls Who Code Club. Uh, my local community library, um, which is a coding club for girls uh, 12 to 18 to get them excited and interested. And as you were talking about the exhibits and making sure that 
the women the women's history of computers is known that was that was part of what the club was about the curriculum for the club is set by you know a national organization that gives you all the materials free as long as you're willing to you know start a club a club um and at the start of every session we watched a video that talked about women's roles in technology um starting with Ada Lovelace and you know setting the groundwork for you know the the mathematicians and the women who did the work and the women who helped you know put the um launch to the moon and you know all these different roles that women have had um, up into current times for women who are working with wearable technology and jewelry that you can program and like all these cool things. And it was just so fun to watch the girls kind of start coming up with these ideas that these are things that, you know, are potential for them. Um, and then to see their reward for them as they learned how to code um, and creating, they did, they picked murder mysteries as their theme. And so <laughs> that's adorable. It was really sweet. Um, they had like four kind of interactive um, uh, games that they created um, as a group and a website that hosted the whole thing and, you know, put it all together. And it was great to watch it come together. Um, and it was super interesting for me because I don't teach that age. <laughs> used to teaching adults. I am also not a coder, which um, for anybody who knows, Girls Who Code like actually encourages people who are not coders to start the clubs. So you will learn along with the girls um, because it's very empowering to them that I would tell them like, show me how you did that. Cause I don't actually know how to do what you just did. And they'd walk me through and like seeing that dawn on them that they had, you know, knowledge that they could help me with was, you know, when I think about, I think about myself as a very feminist instructor um, and always kind of gone in and I say things like I learn a lot from my students, but I'm still the expert in the room most of the time. And so it was a real difference for me to put myself in front of a group of girls and not be the expert uh, and really kind of have to step back and go, that's right. I'm learning here too. I can be just as humbled by this as any, as anybody else. So it was, it was awesome, but it's that same it's kind of on that same vein. And, you know, I didn't pick murder mysteries. Like they, that was how they wanted to go. And that was their thing. And they created a bunch of art. And anyway, it was just awesome. But um, I'm trying to think where I was going to loop back. Oh, part of what I was going to loop back when I was bringing up the Ada Lovelace piece. Okay, so the book that she wrote is um, Ada and the Living Computers. And I have to ask if Ada was selected specifically to as an homage to Ada Lovelace. Absolutely. Oh, I will say that right off the bat. I So I celebrate Ada Lovelace's birthday every year. Oh, that's um, awesome. So at the museum, we, the first year we, it was, I think this was my very, very, very first event at the museum. Yeah. First all ages event and first event in general was the Ada party. And it was Ada's birthday party. And we had a cake, this giant cake with like her, um, her portrait on it. We had like all of these fantastic speakers from various organizations coming in, like, um, Igda and I'll always get there. I always get what it stands for wrong. It's they're basically like an indie gaming. It's indie gaming something. And they're like a global organization and it's led by a woman. Um, and she came in and spoke. And then we had the feminist frequency Ada Lovelace episode of the women in history. I can't remember the name mm-hmm. of them. So we, we had so much of that programming and then the little, I always like to have some kind of plot twist of my events. <laughs> the plot twist of this event was we actually had, um, an immersive actor who was Ada Lovelace. Oh, she, that's awesome. Oh, she looked so much like her. She was dressed head to toe in the full costume. Brilliant, brilliant actress. 
And she was Ada for like eight hours that day. <laughs> and she would like interact with the technology and be like, what's this? And, you know, all this other stuff. And she'd crack jokes and like uh, the little girls were, and we, I mean, we had kids of all sorts. We had right. every party, but it was so cool to see these little girls just look up at her and idolize this mm-hmm. awesome, hilarious woman who was playing Ada. Cause Ada was smart as a whip. And yeah. I don't, mean mathematically i mean she was clever mm-hmm. and she was um her she was very sarcastic and very her character was complex for back then um back in the day because she was she was sarcastic and she was she was usually smarter than every man in the room mm-hmm. and i mean that on an intellectual and sort of emotional um like, oh God, why am I blanking on it? Not IQ, but EQ. EQ, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. her level was so much higher than everyone else in the room. And this actress just pulled it off perfectly. So these little girls were like, oh my gosh, she's so cool. And there was this little girl named Ada after Ada who shared a birthday with Ada. Oh. It was the coolest thing. And I have a picture of it somewhere <laughs> in the events archives. And it gets me every time. It's the coolest thing ever. And so like that little girl um, greatly inspired the character uh, of my little Ada. Uh, okay. The idea of it really. Um, but my little Ada is a little, quite a bit shyer than this little girl was. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ada, it's my birthday too. And I was like, Oh, you're so cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might have partially because she felt safe in space. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. And so I think like when I make events, I like, I don't care if they're VIP. I don't care if they're 21 over. I don't care if they're all ages. There's going to be a silly aspect to it. And that's right. super important to me because I want everyone to feel good when they're at events. And because a lot of our demographic, even my events demographic, skews towards like introverts and folks who might have anxiety around social situations, I want you to know that we're all just silly and like we're all just having fun. And if you need to like, chill there's spaces in this museum to go take a breath and like you just come right back and everyone's just having fun here and like that applies to little kids too and they feel that they definitely so oh yeah yeah after having run around the world with a now you know four-year-old I can definitely say they're hypersensitive to to the vibe and to what they're feeling and they know if they're wanted or they're not and you know it's just it's amazing to see how they will just sort of intuitively pick up on all that I super value like kids' perspectives. Mm-hmm. I trust their, I trust their impression of things so much more than adults. <laughs> yeah, well, because we're you know by the time you get to be an adult, you've been trained as to what's a proper and improper response to something, and kids don't have that filter, and so you know, yeah, you have no question as to if it's working for a kid, you know that it's working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's the thing. <laughs> so tell us about Ada. Tell us about the book. A little yeah. bit about the book, about the story, what your process was like kind of coming up with it. So I my second day on the job at the museum, I was like trying to impress everybody and <laughs> goals or something. And this was back in the day. This was like, oh man, is more than two years ago at this point? I can't quite remember. Think again. It was a tail end. I think it was December of 2015. So pretty much 2016. Yeah, uh, we were in a meeting, and it was maybe a third the size of now. 
we have so many more staff members than back then. And I was trying to impress everyone. And I was like, I'm going to write a children's book about the museum. And then in the same breath, I was like, I'm going to throw a, a cat pajama party with kittens. And they were like, okay, girls, ideas, cool. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and then when we were doing construction on the first floor, that was the first time I attempted the book. Mm-hmm. And so it was supposed to be timed with the um, sort of debut of the first floor. I was supposed to write this book. However, it's really hard to specifically in a book that is about a location, not just a general book, a book about a specific location. It's really difficult to write it when you don't know what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Especially because the book was supposed to look like the museum. <laughs> the first attempt did not go well, and then I I put a pin in it. Um, I think for a year later to start back up again because the first floor was done. I witnessed people interacting with the first floor. I was inspired by that interaction, and I could go back to the book, um, and and start again. And so. The idea was born first and the name, her name was born first. And then uh, my illustrator who I've worked with on, on other projects for other, other work outside of museum work, she and I sat down and just started talking about this little girl and I wanted someone precocious and I wanted someone who was a little shy, a little different, um, not, not like a rambunctious. I didn't want a rambunctious kid. I didn't. I wanted a shy kid. Mm-hmm. That's it. We at the museum, we have a lot of kids who aren't, you know, are not traditional. Like they don't learn in traditional ways and they don't necessarily behave in ways that would be recognized as like, a, you know, this is a kid who's going to yell and be loud and all this kind of stuff. We don't always have kids like that. And so I wanted to pay respects to kind of the full spectrum of behavioralisms that we see in the museum. So I wrote a quiet kid and how through coming to the museum, she ends up becoming empowered by learning mm-hmm. and how much there is to learn and how when she came in, she didn't understand she didn't understand the foundation of what she was seeing. So when she was looking at all these robots, she's very excited by the robots, but then she just didn't understand like, well, why do you do this? What are you doing? And then she ends up going to the second floor, the vintage floor. And she's even more confused. (laughs) What's this? Because the robots are more familiar to her. She understands robots more than she does where robots started. Right. Goes to the vintage floor. She literally is like, what the heck is this? And then her little sidekick, uh, who is a paraplegic turtle, um, (laughs) with a little 3d printed, um, wheelchair, uh, comes out of work and is like, let me, let me tell you some stuff. Let me lay down some knowledge. And they end up interacting with the computers and the computers play a part in kind of, teaching her and protecting her um, on her journey through the museum. Cause there is a little bad guy who is a, a Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Mr. Robot zero. It's supposed to be a play on Mr. Roboto. Uh, and we have a family of Roombas in the museum. They're all named. 
and they have little name tags and they clean the whole museum. And um, the idea of, of the little Roomba is that he is, he doesn't believe in going outside of the lines. He doesn't believe in anything new. He doesn't believe in changes. And he gets mm. mad when he sees people doing things that are different. Oh. He really can't stand the little turtle uh, who is named Alto after another computer, our Alto, um, <laughs> which is a whole different branch of, of the vintage tech. Um, he doesn't like him because Alto is all about coding new worlds and exploring new things. And so... Change. Yeah, change. And so it's it's the journey of that and Ada just learns a lot, but she also realizes like realizes there's so much more to learn. And that's the point of the book is that right. you never have to stop learning and that's literally the coolest part of life. Yes. <laughs> you can never stop, you never yes. have to stop and you can also start whenever. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I love that. I love I love the evolution of it too and I love the thought that that you had to have the space done, like that it actually was born out of the space being finished. Um because, you know, when we when we create narratives, it's very easy to overlay them, you know, and say I'm going to I'm going to take this story, I'm going to put this story in this space and to have taken the time to put it down and say, "Well, I have this great idea." but I can't get it to work right now. I mean, in terms of the creative process to sit it down and say, let me see how the space works and then actually draw the inspiration from what really happened gives it an authenticity that, you know, a book coming out of a museum might not have had. True. And it's, I have to say it, that particular process was the way it was. And so important because it is a visual book. Like, you know, there are illustrations. So if I was writing, like I, I have these aspirations to write like a YA novel set at the museum and like something else set at the museum, which won't have illustrations. And that, that I could probably, I could, I mean, let's be frank. I could BS that. I could write right. a computer that I looked up that's probably in there. But with the illustrations and working with my illustrator, like we needed to get those visuals down. And there's yeah. actually a specific example of how that paid off um, that I'll say in a second. But with the illustrator... She, I mean, her name is Elizabeth Dion. Uh, she is phenomenal. I work with her on everything and I refer her for everything and I trust her um, and her vision. And we've worked now for like two or three years together. And so we kind of trust each other's process, but she came in up to three times a week for a oh, wow. time um, to walk with me through the museum and it took, I mean, the longest part of that whole thing was getting the script done. Because when you write a children's book script, it's it's like one degree, two degrees away from a comic book script, which is what right. I'm actually used to. Um, so it's a lot of, it's dialogue and then it's it's several layers of description because it's not, it's not panels in a comic book where you kind of turn to the artist and be like, you can figure this. <laughs> children's book, there aren't any like little boxes. Right. That- more abstract and so she would come in and we would walk around the museum and I would we would both have the script and I would say okay so this line here on this page this is the machine I'm gonna like I'm gonna have you mess with it we're gonna mess with it and like see what it looks like get a feel for it like get a personality off this and it was just that process to nail down what the visuals were and then a lot of back and forth because initially I wanted it all to be watercolor based um, and so we went through several drafts of like, 
varying degrees of intense color and we kept knocking down the intensity because I wanted it to be very soft. Mm-hmm. Just nothing that was too intense. I wanted to reflect your, um, your character. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because that was absolutely true. Um, and so the example of why I am so thankful that we were so, so authentic, I guess, or um, chasing authenticity was we had a little story time um, event and it was, oh my God, it was so cute. We had two story times. We had one in the morning and one in the afternoon and two groups of kids. And it was so great because both times those two group of kids, like the parent would purchase the book if they wanted to. Most of them did. I would sign it and interact with the kid and talk to them and all that sort of thing. And we had like a little, it was, the whole thing was just so freaking adorable. We had like a little cocoa bar. It was so cute. Um, <laughs> what would happen is the kid would have the book and they would take their parents around to the locations. I, yeah. And I will never get over this. This little girl snaps the book shut, turns to her dad and is like, dad, that's the CDC 6,500. <laughs> tear my heart out. This is the best. I will. <laughs> like, this is amazing. And then after the book, the second group, they wanted to go on a tour of the book and they had the book and they grabbed my hand and they're like, we're going to take you and we're going to find everything. And I was like, Oh my God, this is the cutest. And we had our, <laughs> we had our little Roombas and literally brought out a Roomba. It was like, here's Mr. Robot zero. And the illustrator who also can make plushies uh-huh. made a full size plushie of Alto, the turtle. So we had the turtle. We had, it was just, it was the greatest thing. And so these kids, I mean, they want to see everything. They're like, yeah. this book, show it to me. Right. And I'm so glad that we could. Yeah. Because I have the turtle. I had the Roomba. I had the computers. And like it, whew. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be very stressed out if a kid was like, where's this? And I'd be like, oh, I made it up. Oh, no. Yeah. Absolutely never, never happened because it's all real. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> we were so into it. These kids were like aggressively into this book. They were like, I want to see all the computers. I want to press the button. Well, there's something very, you know, kids kids who have been exposed to books have that, you know, that knowledge of what books are. But when you can break that wall for them and you can actually like go and point and say, oh, look, here is this. And you saw it in the book. Like just absolutely magical. They have these, um, these series of Christmas books that have like um, the different towns and different states represented. Um, and you know, I mean, you pick them up at Costco, so they're like, you know, totally mass produced or whatnot, but they're so sweet because then you have, you know, you're telling a Christmas story and it's actually relating to, you know, the area where the child is, as opposed to, you know, like reading a Christmas carol or something like that, that might take place in a town or have, you know, a layout of a city that doesn't look anything like where they live. So it's just that being able to make things real coming out of books for kids is like, it really is. It can be really fun. Oh, it was. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, it's been, it's been so much fun talking to you, Matisse. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a pleasure. It's been a true delight. So what else, what else would you like our listeners to know about the museum, your upcoming events? What, where can they find you? What, what give us all the details? The deets. So um, I guess first off the book, 
another another irony, I suppose, is we don't have it available online because we're currently redoing our entire system um, to be able to have an online store. So that's coming. But for now, you can pick up the book at Living Computers, um, which is in Soto of Seattle. And if there's a way or if there's not a way for you to get to the museum, you can email me um, just at events at livingcomputers.org. Um, and what I've been doing is just doing like a PayPal me thing where you just actually just send me the fee and I'll mail you the book with oh. cost because it's our bad. It's our right. bad not available. And, and we've actually, we've sold a lot of books that way. So it's, it's a lot of me packing fuchsia shipping envelopes and sending them out. It's been really cute. Um, That's awesome. And then as far as upcoming events, our next big event, which is our first evening all ages feature event is a fashion show. It's our tech-bound fashion show, Ooh. which will be July 7th at 6 p.m. And we will feature geek-themed clothing inspired by actual franchises and actual fandoms. Oh, um, awesome. Very cool. We will be featuring Elhoffer Designs, who is one of just the premier kind of geek-chic uh designers out there right now like you can see her work on the red carpet like the han solo premiere um the entire elhoffer line was there um, some of the actors were in her clothes a lot of star wars premieres feature her work so we're really excited to have her involved and in like interspersed with that we'll have a lot of cosplayers walking we'll have um a lot of tech oriented like led suits sound suits uh conductive fabric demos we'll have a pop-up exhibit um and we will have a beer and wine bar for the parents Um, but it's all ages everyone is welcome um and that's coming up pretty soon and then on july 1st actually i should mention we do have a daytime event uh kind of in honor of the special olympics which is around accessibility in tech so cool so cool and so we'll be chatting with some organizations that work on either um, differently abled in the classroom technology or differently abled physically uh, technology. Like it's just, it's all about that, that inclusivity again. And so we're discussing resources in Seattle um, that is about technology for all. And it's really fun. And then uh, as for me um, personally, as far as like writing and even museum stuff, you can find me on Twitter uh, just at Matisse Fletcher, M-A-T-I-S-S-E, <laughs> Matisse Fletcher. Um, and then for the museum, we're living computers pretty much everywhere. So that's on every social media channel. We're just living computers. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And to all our listeners, definitely go out and follow everywhere you can. Living Computers and Matisse. She puts up great content, I promise. <laughs> to go check it out i will have links to everything on the geekembassy.com network host for game on girl um and i will have links and i'll have a link to the email if you are interested in getting a copy of ada and the living computers which i will have to email you about because i was looking to get one and didn't realize that i could email you for one (laughs) so thanks so much thank you this is so fun this is so fun that's great 